and also at Ramesick Church of God. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. I've, I've heard of the things that the Lord is doing here. I don't make that statement flippantly. Just yesterday I was told of the number of baptisms recently and new members that have brought have been brought into the congregation here and I'm just glad to be able to be here this morning to witness it, to be a part of it, to worship Christ with you. Um, I'm pleasantly shocked at how full the church is even though I was told the majority of the young adults were at the Cross Current Camp. That's something to give thanks to God for. I have to remember, sister, that you're sitting over here to the left because I could just easily forget you and you're over there, but it's fine. I'll see you over there, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny too. I asked uh, Ponzo why he wasn't at Cross Current Camp this weekend and he said, I'm not a young adult anymore. And I said, oh, okay. I said, uh, when, did, when did that change? When did you shift from being a young adult to being a proper adult? And I thought he would say at a certain age, but that wasn't it. When he got a job, but that not even when he had his first child. You know what he said? When I had my second child, then I moved from young adult to adult. And I thought, so you, you all who don't, who aren't married with two children, you can just talk to him about that afterwards. So. Interesting definition of becoming an adult. Luke 14. As we dive into this chapter. I just want to remind you of where we are in Luke's gospel. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. This is the last time he will travel to that great city. Because when he gets there, he's going to die. He tells his disciples multiple times along the way that when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer greatly. He will be betrayed, he will be arrested, he will be mocked. He even tells them he will be spat upon and that he will be whipped. And then he will be hung on a cross to die. So the cross, crucifixion, is looming in the forefront of Jesus' mind as he travels this road. And yet it's very interesting. Luke tells us, look there at verse 25, that as he's journeying to Jerusalem, great crowds were accompanying him. Note that, not a great crowd, but great crowds, plural. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people are thronging, gathered around Jesus, traveling with him to Jerusalem. Now to someone who was watching this on that day, it may have appeared to them at first sight that surely everyone around Jesus was a true disciple of his and was following him as his disciple. But we know that that wasn't the case. Often these large crowds were mixed. There were some in the crowd who truly believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and they were following him as his committed disciples. But there were others who were in the crowd that had not yet decided who Christ was for them, had not yet committed to fully follow Jesus and take his yoke of teaching upon them for all their life. And I think it's safe to assume this morning that it's probably the same as we're gathered here. The visible church, even this gathering this Sunday morning, right here and now, is probably a mixed crowd. Perhaps many of us or all of us would profess with our lips to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And I thank God that many of you likely are. You've really surrendered your lives. You've really committed to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. But for others, you're here and you've not yet committed to Christ. Like the people in these crowds, you know there were probably some people gathered around Jesus on that day who if you asked them, why are you around Jesus? Why are you following him? They might say, because of the miracles he's doing. I mean, he did miracles that no one had ever done. Some might have said, have you heard the way he speaks? This man speaks as no man has ever spoken. They were enthralled by his teachings. 
excited about his miracles, his power, but they had not yet truly committed to him. And maybe that's the case with some of you here this morning. You might be here for a number of reasons. You might read the Bible. You might come to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening. You might go to Bible study on campus. You might attend a small group. You, you might do a number of religious things in connection with this church. But you may not really yet believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke tells us there were thousands and thousands of people surrounding Jesus. Verse 25, Jesus turned and said to them. This is very dramatic. He's walking on the road and all of a sudden he hits the brakes and he stops walking. I mean, to me it seems like just traffic jam on the N1. Everyone is just going 120 and then the cars in the front just slam on the brakes. And everyone behind is, what, what's going on? Well, why, why are we stopped? What's and Jesus, Luke, Luke tells us, he dramatically turns and faces the crowds around him and behind him. And he says these words to them. They're recorded for us. 26 to 33. Let me read them for you. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you who desires to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation but is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him and say, this man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king who is going out to encounter another king in war does not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 of his own to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if he realizes he is not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. These are very strong words. Very direct, challenging words from Jesus. And I believe what we have here in these words are Jesus' conditions to be his disciple. His terms, his conditions that we must understand, we must agree to, and we must fulfill if we're going to follow him. He gives us three conditions, but before we look at them, I just want to say a few things about these conditions, these statements, so that we better understand them and see how significant and important they are for us. First, what, what is a disciple? We're talking about conditions to be a disciple. What is a disciple? Well, a disciple is both a learner and a follower of Jesus Christ. It's someone who not only commits to learning the teachings of Jesus, understanding them with their minds, but someone who also takes action and puts the teachings of Jesus Christ to practice in their life. That's a true disciple of Jesus. Second, we need to remember that it is only disciples, true disciples of Jesus Christ that will enter the kingdom of God when Christ returns. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, those who hear my words but do not do them. See the emphasis. You can hear them but not do them. He said, will be like a man who builds his house on sand. And when the storm comes, he's talking about the judgment of God coming. When the storm comes, the wind blows, the floods rise, the rains fall, that house will fall in that storm and great will be its fall. But he says, the one who hears my words and does them, lives by them, will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. 
a solid foundation so that when the storm comes and beats against that house, that house will stand. You see what he's saying? You can be a hearer. This is, this is sobering. You can be a hearer of Jesus' words, but if you do not live by them as a true disciple, you will not stand in the judgment of God. Third, we'll see here that Jesus' conditions, they're universal. They apply to all people without exception. You notice his language. If anyone comes to me, whoever does not. So therefore, any one of you who does not. You see, he makes it very personal, very individual. But he covers all of us. It doesn't matter what shade your skin color is. It doesn't matter how young or old you are, single or married. It doesn't matter what level of education you've completed. It doesn't matter what ethnic group or tribe you're from. It doesn't matter what your upbringing and your religious experience in the past until now has been. It doesn't matter what political affiliation you commit to. Every single one of us must meet these conditions of Jesus Christ if we're going to be his disciple and follow him. No one is excluded. And fourth, his conditions are absolute. They're absolute. You heard three times Jesus said, if you are not willing to do this, you cannot be my disciple. He didn't say, you might not be able to be my disciple. He didn't say, you can be a less committed follower of mine, a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. He said, you cannot be my disciple. Literally, it is impossible to be a disciple of Jesus Christ if we don't meet these conditions. Let's look at the three conditions. First, if we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must prioritize Jesus above all other people. You must prioritize Jesus above all other people. Look again at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is startling. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate. And you have to hate the people closest to you on earth. Now that should shock us a little bit and maybe even confuse us because this is the same Jesus who said, you should love your neighbor as yourself. What does he mean here by this? Is Jesus saying that we should resent our closest family members? We should wish evil upon them? We should withhold our affections from them? We should be rude and disrespectful toward them? We should seek to do harm against them? Of course not. That is not what Jesus means here. Well, what does he, he mean? I believe what Christ means is that we should prioritize our relationship with him above all other earthly relationships, even our closest ones. We should love him supremely, even more than we love our very own flesh and blood family members. Now I get this from similar words in Matthew chapter 10. Christ says something very similar there to his disciples. And I believe he's saying the same thing in just two different ways. In Matthew chapter 10, and in verse 34, he said these words. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now again, that ought to startle us. We're reading through the Gospel of Luke and family devotions. We're in Luke 2 now. In the beginning of Luke chapter 2, what do the angels proclaim from heaven? Glory to God in the highest and peace among men on earth. And Jesus says, I didn't come here to bring peace. 
That was the whole proclamation of the angelic choir in the heavens. What's going on here? He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Is he some kind of political revolutionary like the liberation theologians would tell us? That he comes to bring violent revolution on the earth and to overthrow the status quo in society? The civil authorities over the oppressed and the downtrodden? No, here's what he means. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. And then he says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see what he's saying? Jesus is calling his disciples to give the highest devotion and allegiance to him more than anyone else, even your family members. He's not calling us to literally hate them, but I believe what he's calling us to is that if there ever comes a time, and there will, I should say whenever the time comes, that your relationship, not just with family, but with anyone on this earth, comes into conflict with your relationship to Jesus Christ, you must choose Jesus Christ over that person. Immediately as I say that, some of you say, yes, I've experienced that. I know exactly what that guy's talking about. That's what Christ is calling us to. Let me give you some examples. If Gogo requests that you need to go back to the village and offer a sacrifice to the ancestors for whatever reason, but you know Jesus Christ has said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You have to dishonor Gogo's request and honor the Lord Jesus with your decision. If your so-called friends encourage you to sleep with a young man or a young woman in order to try them out before you consider marriage, but you know Jesus Christ has said, do not commit sexual immorality. If they invite you to come and party with them and get drunk, but you know Jesus has said, do not be drunk with wine, but be sober-minded. You've got to be willing to lose that friendship and offend your friends and reject that counsel and that invitation in order to hold on to your relationship with Jesus Christ and to obey him. If your boss at work pressures you to lie on paperwork in order to earn the company more money, if a colleague pressures you to fudge some numbers or change some information so that he and or you might look better in the monthly reports, but you know Jesus has said, stop lying and speak the truth. You've got to be willing to offend and disobey your boss and your colleague in order to honor Jesus. If your mother or father tells you, oh, I'm so happy for you. Oh, I'm so glad you're going to Heritage Baptist Church and you seem to be really enjoying yourself and you're making friends and it's having a great impact on your life. That's nice. You want to be a, among the born-again ones? Abba Cindy Siway, you want to meet with them? That's great. Enjoy yourself. But no, you will not get baptized and publicly join that church. Either because they raised you in some Christian denomination where you were quote-unquote baptized as an infant and they're pressing on you that it would be offensive to then be immersed later in life? What would you be saying about the way we raised you and our convictions? Or perhaps coming from a traditional slant, maybe even aggressively saying things like, Jesus? Christianity? That's the white man's religion. Don't you know that? You know what those leaders in those churches are trying to do to you? They're trying to colonize your mind. Don't you realize that? They're trying to take you captive 
and to tear you away from your culture and your family and your heritage. That's what they're trying to do. And they put their foot down and they refuse and say, in this household, you will not follow Jesus Christ in that way at that church. But you know the call of Jesus Christ. Repent and every single one of you be baptized. Follow me. You see, and you've got to choose. You've got to choose. Are you going to follow Jesus Christ? Or are you going to give in to the pressures of your family? Now, I don't know what some of you have experienced yet along some of these lines in following Jesus. And I've not experienced this to the degree that I know others have, either here or around the world. But it cost me to follow Jesus. I remember when I first started to follow Christ, I literally lost all of my friends that I had from varsity and from high school. I was two years out of varsity, living with a mate, and I could no longer even live with him because of the sexual immorality that was going on in our apartment. It literally cost me those friendships. I could no longer walk with them. I wish I could have continued to be salt and light and have a witness with them. It just was not possible. I had to choose. Break with them or break with Christ. It cost me in my own family. Jesus has brought a, a literal sword through me and my biological brother. I have a brother four years younger than me. There is a literal sword between us. It grieves my heart, but it's, it's a reality. He wants nothing at all to do with following Jesus Christ. And it has put us at polar opposite ends. It's cost me relationships with extended family. We refer to cousins, uncles, aunts as extended family. It's like we can't even get together at family holidays and have the same kind of closeness and laugh at the same things and enjoy the same conversation, the same activities that we used to because so much of it dishonors Jesus Christ. And I cannot participate in that. I cannot laugh at that. I cannot enjoy that. I cannot be positive about that and encourage that and support that anymore. Christ is calling us to serious cost, to serious sacrifice, to putting him first above every earthly relationship and following him. But what does he mean there Notice also in verse 26. What does he mean there when he says, Yes, one must be willing even to hate his own life if he wants to be my disciple. Is Jesus calling us to do harm to our physical bodies? You know, to overwork ourselves to the point of exhaustion, to the point of sickness, to neglect appropriate rest, and comfort at times? Is he calling us to starve ourselves? To do physical harm to our bodies? In essence, to kill ourselves? Well, that's not what Jesus is calling us to. What does he mean when he says we must hate even our own lives? Well, I think he expands on it in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, you must die. You must die. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. One man has said, this statement probably horrified Jesus' listeners because as he spoke these words, everybody knew what he meant. In the Roman world, before a man died on a cross, he had to carry his cross to the place of execution. They knew what Jesus meant when he talked about a cross. Thirty years prior to Jesus saying these words, there was an uprising, a rebellion of Jews against the Roman emperor under a man called Judas in the northern province of Galilee. They rebelled. Finally, the Roman general, he squashed the rebellion. And when he did, he literally crucified 2,000 Jews. 
put them on wooden crosses and line the roads going into and out of Galilee as a public statement to anyone who would seek to rebel against the emperor of Rome. You see, they understood that a cross was... You wouldn't find people in this time wearing crosses as jewelry around their necks. They wouldn't have clothing with crosses embroidered or printed on it. They wouldn't be tattooing crosses on their bodies. Not because there's essentially anything wrong with that, please don't misunderstand me, but because of what the cross stood for. It was offensive to the Jewish eyes. It was a symbol of shame and humiliation. It was a symbol of capital punishment. It was a symbol of awful pain and public torture and certain death. And that's what Jesus Christ calls his disciples to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus Christ calls a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. Come and die. What a wonderful invitation, isn't it? Come and die. Come and lose your life in following me. practically mean though? What does it look like to take up our cross and, and follow Jesus? All-known sin in our lives in order to obey Jesus. It's got to mean at least that. Forsaking all sexual immorality and pursuing purity of mind and body. Forsaking all lying and pursuing telling the truth. Forsaking all stealing and laziness and working hard with our hands. Forsaking all pride and pursuing humility. Forsaking all anger, bitterness, vengeance, wrath, resentment, and pursuing love, patience, forgiveness, kindness, and gentleness. Forsaking all jealousy and envy and pursuing contentment. Forsaking all ancestral worship and pursuing worshiping God only. Forsaking fearing evil spirits and trusting in the Lord alone. Forsaking all drunkenness and pursuing sober-mindedness. Forsaking all grumbling and complaining and pursuing giving of thanks and rejoicing. I think that's clear. But I think it goes further than that. And Jesus calls us to deny ourselves in areas that are not clearly, explicitly sinful. And to deny ourselves even in areas that are competing for the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in our lives, even for certain seasons of time. What do I mean by this? Let me give you a personal example. You may not be able to relate to this, but it gives you an idea of, of what I have in mind. So for me, an area of competing rule are sports highlights and videos. I get on my phone, I get on my tablet, and I say, okay, I'm going to watch 15 minutes of sports highlights to the glory of Jesus Christ. Right? Some of you do the same thing, I can tell, yeah. Or at least you try to, like I do. And then about seven minutes in, I've totally forgot about Jesus. And I'm just, I've become almost like a zombie in front of that screen. And if I'm on YouTube, you know just one click away is the next highlight. And then the next one. And 15 minutes turns into 30. 30 turns into 60. 60 turns into 120. And next thing you know, not only is it just time, but my mind has been engulfed in an exercise that actually has nothing to do with Jesus. It could have. It's not essentially wrong. But for me, I find it has a strong pull in my life and I have to be very vigilant and careful and exercise discipline. I don't always do it the best, but I know I've got to exercise discipline in this area and even at times deny myself because it can start to compete for affections in my heart that only belong to Jesus. It can start to distract me from focusing on things that I know Jesus wants me to spend more time and focus on. It can feed my flesh and create more earthly-mindedness in me 
rather than focusing more on Christ and the kingdom to come. Now that's what it can look like for me. What, what is it for you? As you hear me describe that, maybe you say, sports highlights, what's your problem? Just turn the phone off. Well, that's easy for you to say. But maybe there's one or two areas of your life. Maybe some hobbies, things you enjoy watching, things you enjoy doing, whatever it is. What are one or two things that come to your mind that you know right now, even as I'm talking, these are competing for your loyalty, competing for your affections, competing for your time and focus, competing against Jesus Christ and his rule in your life. Maybe you know that Jesus has been saying, I want you to do less of that. Or I want you to stop that altogether. Whatever it is, it looks different for each of us, but Christ is pressing in and he wants full reign, full rule, full obedience in that area of your life. If any desires, any passions, any tastes, any ambitions, any goals, objectives, hopes, dreams, pursuits, plans, habits, traditions, customs, tendencies, personalities, if any of them come into conflict with the will of Jesus Christ for your life, you need to put the sword to them. You need to deny them and submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ wants to rule his disciples in how we use our time, what friends we keep, what we look at on our phones, how we spend our money, what kind of job we work, where we live, what we study, what career we choose, who we marry, how we relate to other people, how we speak to our husband or wife, how we raise our children, how we talk about government officials and relate to police officers, how we vote, how we dress, how we eat and drink, how much we eat and drink, how we speak, what we think about things, how we evaluate, how we make decisions, how we make judgments, what we believe to be true and false and right and wrong, how we feel, what we love, what we hate, what we approve of, what we disapprove of, what we laugh at, what we cry at, what entertainment we engage in, how much entertainment we engage in. That's not exhaustive. Christ wants to be Lord over every single area of your life. But if that's not enough, I think his words here most directly and explicitly mean that if we're going to be his disciple, we must be willing to experience rejection, shame, humiliation, mocking, abandonment, loneliness, disrespect, dishonor, threats, slander, attacks, pain, sorrow, injury, maybe even imprisonment or actual physical death itself. If that's what it takes to obey Jesus, to proclaim him as Lord and Savior, and to live according to his righteous commandments. Friends, discipleship has the highest cost. Have you, have you considered it? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? That's what Christ goes on to do here. He gives two illustrations and calls us to consider the cost of following him. First, look at verse 28. He talks about a man who wants to build a tower. He says, for, he's connecting it back to what he just said in verse 27, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him and say, this man began to build but was not able to finish. You see his point, right? It's very clear. He says, only a fool would begin a building project without first counting the cost and seeing if he has enough resources to finish it. Right? A wise man will first sit down and say, what are the materials I need? 
What's the total cost? What's the total labor? What's it going to take to see this through to the end? And then ask himself honestly, do I have enough to finish this building project? In the same way Jesus is calling us, he's saying, if we're going to come to him, if we're going to begin to follow him and follow him throughout our whole lives, he says we first need to sit down and honestly ask ourselves, what's it going to cost us? Realize what it's going to cost. And are you willing to commit then to that cost to following Jesus? You know, I'm so glad actually that Jesus does this. He tells us up front. Because you know the danger for many people is if they don't realize this cost, right? They make a public confession of Christ. Maybe even through the waters of baptism. They join a local church. They seem really excited and zealous for Christ in the beginning. But then, things start to happen. Pressures start to come in on them. Temptations to go back to the sins they used to love and be enthralled with. The same kinds of people they used to run with come back into their lives and try to grab hold of them and pull them back into the darkness and the muck in the world. If they get work, now all of a sudden there's aspirations for money and career advancement and all kinds of temptations in that, in that area of life. Maybe they start to experience some of the persecution from, from family members or from friends or from colleagues at work. There's the threat that if you keep talking like this publicly on social media, you're going to be canceled. We're going to have to suspend your account. We're going to have to delete and deactivate you. You're no longer going to have a voice in certain spheres. You might have to lose your job. You might have to quit this or that. And if you didn't realize that that is what you were signing up for, you, you see what the temptation will be to turn back and stop following Christ. It's like it surprises you. And you, well, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 what's going on? I didn't sign up for this. I, I was told that following Jesus, everything's going to be better. Relationships will be better. My marriage will be healed. My kids will love me. I'll be successful in what I study and in my career endeavors. The hand of God is upon me now to bless me and make everything great. I'm going to have my best life now. You've heard that, huh? You see, and Jesus doesn't, he doesn't want us to sign up for something without an informed decision. He wants us to know the cost. Because I think Jesus would rather have someone not follow him at all than begin to follow him, profess faith in him, say that he's the Lord of their life, take the sign of the covenant upon themselves in the waters of baptism and then renounce him later because it will be far worse for that person on the day of judgment than for the one who never began to confess and follow Christ at all. You see, Jesus is loving us. At the very least, he's sparing some of us from worse judgment when he comes. But more than that, for those of us who are going to or who are following him, he tells us up front, these are my conditions. And I love that about him. He puts them in large print right up front. Follower, beware. Note well. Here's the conditions. You see, he's not like your average marketers nowadays. Maybe some of you are studying marketing. You need to, you need to consider this, okay? You really, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but I'm serious about the ethical implications sometimes about marketing tendencies and ploys. You know, you see this big billboard for this prescription medicine, right? And the lady on there who's, you know, shooting that thing up her nose, she's just, ah, she looks so happy and she's getting this relief. And then at the bottom, you see these scads of little things. As you're driving in your car, you can't tell, what is that, you know? And so one day you decide you're going to pull over and you get out the binoculars and you look and 
<laughs> you know what those are. Those are all the warning signs about the side effects. Warning may cause dizziness, inability to swallow, inflammation of the sinuses. And you're thinking, I thought I bought this actually to stop the inflammation of my sinuses. This is backwards. You know, may cause involuntary muscle movements. I heard that yesterday about a prescription drug. May cause involuntary muscle movements that stay with you the rest of your life. You know, they just rattle these things off really quickly at the end of the advert. Because they don't want you to hear it. They don't want you to read it. They just want you to buy the product, hope you're one of the, the percentages that don't have side effects, and they don't have to include you in their next kind of altering of the percentages. They're going to be honest. You see, oftentimes, that's deceitful. They don't want to tell you up front, this is what it may cost you, this is what it will cost you. Jesus is not like that. He speaks the truth in love right up front. Bold type, underlined. If you're going to follow me, you must prioritize me above every other earthly relationship, and you must come and die. And then third, Jesus says if we're going to be his disciple, we must surrender everything, everything we own, over to Jesus. Look at the next picture he gives in verse 31. He says, or, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate? whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Again, you see Jesus' point here, right? Only a foolish king would engage in war with another king before checking first to see, am I outnumbered? And only a foolish king would decide that if he sees that he's outnumbered, he's still going to attempt to go to war with his enemy. No, he says a wise king, if he realizes that he is outmatched by his enemy, he will not go to war. He will send a delegation, wave the white flag, and ask for terms of peace. That's what a wise king would do. And it's interesting, this phrase, Terms of peace. If you're able, quickly, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. I think Jesus and his hearers had something particular in mind when Christ uttered these words, terms of peace, in this context. Deuteronomy 20, God is giving rules to Israel through Moses, and he's telling them, this is how you're to engage in warfare when you come upon a city in the land. Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. He says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, first offer what? Terms of peace. You see that? It's the same phrase. First offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you, peaceably, if it agrees to the terms of peace that you've offered, and it opens the city to you, notice this, then all the people who are found in that city shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. Do you understand what's happening there? If you were in the land of Canaan and walled up in a city and you saw an army marching towards you and their banners were in the name of Yahweh and you realize this is Israel. And so they came to you and they offered you peace. This is what Israel would offer. You got two options. You who are in the city, two options. One, you can open up to us. You can peaceably receive us. And if you do that and allow us to come in, we will not take the sword to you. But you must be willing to give over everything you possess into our possession and you must become our slaves. You must do forced labor and serve us all the days of your lives. That's option one. Option two, if you're not so inclined to take option one, is really simple. We batter down your walls and come in and put the sword to every single one of you. 
Those are your two options. Which do you want? Ooh. Is there option three? <laughs> Is there not a third option here? Neither of those sound really good, but those are the options. And look at what Christ says there back in Luke 14, verse 33. He says, So therefore, in the same way, with this idea of asking for terms of peace, in the same way, therefore, I tell you, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's exactly what's happening in Deuteronomy 20. The word here, renounce, is used six other times in the New Testament. Every other time it's used, it's in the context of someone leaving someone's home, parting with their company, and literally renouncing them, saying goodbye to them. So you see what Jesus is saying here. If you're going to come to me and follow me, you need to say goodbye to everything you own, everything you possess. Someone who's going to follow Jesus Christ as his disciple, when they come to Christ, they cease. From that day on, they stop being the owner of anything. And they become a manager of everything they possess. Christ now is the owner of everything in their life. And they're simply a steward, simply a manager now under the authority and command of King Jesus to use everything they have for his sake, according to his will, however he leads each of us. And it can look different. It will look different for each of us. For some of us, maybe Jesus Christ is or he will call you to literally liquidate all the money you have in a bank or banks to sell everything you have and to give it away and to go somewhere else to follow him and proclaim his gospel. That may be what he's calling you to or what he will call you to. And if and when he does, you need to be willing to follow him. But on the extreme other side of the spectrum, maybe for some of us, it's just as simple as I want you to take that pair of shoes it's not the only pair of shoes you own. It's like your third or fourth or fifth pair of shoes. I just want you to take that one pair of shoes and go give it to that brother or sister in Christ who you know needs them. Or go give it to that unbelieving friend or neighbor that you know needs them. It can be as simple as that. And it can be anywhere in between. The issue is not what the item is or how much it is. The issue is if Christ puts his finger on it and says, I want you to sell it or I want you to get rid of it. Maybe he wants you just to throw it in the trash. Or I want you to give it away, whatever it is. When he puts his finger on it, we must be willing to part ways with it in obedience to Jesus, to use all that we have for his sake and for his kingdom. I know a couple who took this really serious and they went around their house. They were thinking, we want to take this condition, this command, really serious. They went around their whole house and they literally out loud, item by item said, this belongs to the Lord. This belongs to Jesus. This belongs to Christ. This is not ours to choose what to do with it. And they did that in order to remind themselves of this reality. That at any time, Jesus might come calling and say, take that and give it. Take that and sell it. Take that and get rid of it. And they wanted to have that heart of surrender and commitment to Jesus. Maybe that would be a good exercise for some of us to do today, is to go back to where we stay and point our finger at certain things and say, that's Jesus' car. That's Christ's clothing. That's the Lord's furniture. This is Jesus' house. These are his shoes. This is his jewelry. This is his phone. This is his, whatever the items are. Just to remind ourselves that we have resigned ownership of everything into the hands of Jesus Christ. If we haven't, we need to wake up and do it. Because that's what Christ wants. Full ownership and possession 
of everything we have. Now, I found these words very challenging and convicting, especially in small areas of daily life, how I speak to my wife, times when I'm tired and I don't even want to get into that serious, long conversation with her, but she needs to talk. Or I'm just tired and I just don't want to have to deal with the next thing that our daughter has gotten into or, or that's gotten into her. She got sand in her eye yesterday. We had to, to deal with that. Just these small areas of self-denial in obedience to Jesus Christ. It's a great cost to follow him. But also, I think these words are meant to be an encouragement also. Maybe some of you are feeling this right now. Maybe some of you are feeling the pressure, the temptation, the persecution by people from sin, from the world, from success, from whatever culture and media is hanging out there, peers and people are saying to you, whether internal or external. And the temptation is to turn back. Or at the very least, just to kind of, you know, just ease up a bit. You don't have to be so serious about following Jesus. Don't be so radical. I mean, don't be such a fanatic. You don't always have to say something every single time, right? That's true, you don't. But you see, some of those thoughts, some of those statements, even from others, they start to crowd in and press on you. And then, maybe next time I'll be quiet. I won't say anything. I won't do anything. I'll just go along with it. I might laugh at it. I might not make such a big deal about it. And I think these words of Jesus are meant to actually encourage you and say, don't compromise. Don't let up for a moment. Keep pressing hard after Jesus. This is what you signed up for. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be discouraged by it. Don't be disheartened. Don't let up. Don't turn back. Keep putting your face forward to following Jesus. Keep taking up your cross and following him. Keep pressing on. Be encouraged. This is the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Christ took up his cross and followed the will of God for his life on earth. And he's calling us to do the same in following him. It will cost us everything to follow him. But I want you to consider two final thoughts. There is a cost to following Jesus. But there is a greater cost to not following Jesus. You understand that? There is a greater cost to not following Jesus. Do not be deceived. The King of Kings, Jesus Christ, is coming back soon. The day of his wrath and vengeance is hurrying upon us. And if you do not turn from your sin and embrace him as your king and follow him, he will meet you with a different kind of sword on that day. If you die and perish in your sins, you will face the everlasting wrath of God in hell. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and all the holy angels. If you try to keep your life, if you try to preserve your reputation and your possessions and your ease and your comfort and your desires and your pursuits and your family and your friends and your future, if you try to hold on to those things, and you let go of Jesus Christ. He says you could gain the whole world doing that, but you'd be a fool because you're forfeiting, you're exchanging. The cost of that is this. It's your soul for all eternity. You cannot put a price tag on your soul. Do you understand that? I was reminded again yesterday when Abigail had sand in her eye, how precious our eyes are to us. I mean, if I offered you 10 million rand for one of your eyes. Would you give it to me? You would. Some of you said yes. <laughs> ah. 
ah, we need to pray more for this congregation. Ah, yo. I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Beware, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, isn't it? Even evil to your own eye if you're not careful, hey? I think you'd be a fool to give me one of your eyes. Now maybe if I said both eyes? Okay, now it's not. Okay. All right. That's better, yeah. You see, because you say these eyes are precious. Okay, yeah, I get it. You take one, at least I have the other one, right? But you take both. I can't see anymore, right? And the ability to see it, it's very precious to us, isn't it? I get a little speck in my eye. I flip out. I just, I flip out because I think, I'm going to lose my eye. I'm going to lose my eye. It's very serious. Now, if you wouldn't give me both eyes for 10 million rand, why would you give your soul your never-dying soul, why would you exchange that for the things of this world? You'd be a fool to do that. Don't lose your soul. Don't forfeit your soul. There's a great cost for not following Jesus. But second, though there is a cost for following Jesus, there is also a great reward for following Jesus. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knew what his issue was, right? He loved his possessions. He loved his riches. So after a little back and forth, he said to him, okay, you lack one thing, just one thing you lack. You want to inherit eternal life? Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me and you'll have treasure. If he would have stopped there, I think the man would have done it. But he said, you'll have treasure where? In heaven. And the man's heart sank. It was deflated. He went away from Jesus sad. Why? Because he had many possessions. The possessions had him. You see. Now the disciples hear this. And so Peter goes to Jesus and says, Ooh, wait a minute, Lord. Wait, wait, wait. We've left everything to follow you. What are we going to get? And you remember what Jesus said to him? Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. He's not talking about just general humanitarianism. He's talking about leaving things to follow him and the gospel. There is not one person who has done that who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with persecutions, here's the balance, and, here's the kicker, in the age to come, eternal life. Now that only excites you. That only is attractive to you if you value eternal life. Do you value eternal life? You see what Jesus is offering here to his followers? Life, true life, everlasting life in the kingdom of God. And it begins now. Forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with your creator whom you've offended with your sin, freedom from the bondage and power of sin in your life, the Holy Spirit implanted in you to empower you to love God and love others and to obey Jesus here and now a joy, a peace, a meaning, a purpose in life that no one else and nothing else can give like Jesus. And nothing can take away from you. Not even death can take that away from you. The hope, the sure confidence that when Jesus comes back, you will enter into the everlasting kingdom of God. You will have a sin-free, resurrected, glorious body. You will be in the presence of Jesus Christ forever, worshiping and serving Him in a new heavens, in a new earth, where righteousness dwells. No more sin, no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more devil. There is no better offer 
that anyone can ever give to you than Jesus Christ is offering. And you know it cost him as well. It cost him his life. He went to the cross when he got to Jerusalem. He laid down his life. He suffered under the very wrath of God for your sins that he might secure and offer to you this everlasting life. I mean, if, if every one of you this morning were holding on to a small baggie of sand, okay? You just had it on your lap. And I pulled out a bag of diamonds. And I said, I will give to each one of you this bag of diamonds. But you must be willing to give me that bag of sand on your lap if you want these diamonds. I mean, I trust every single one of you would do that, right? I mean, what would you think of someone who sat there as everyone is just rushing to the front, you turned around, and he's sitting there, and he's gripping his bag of sand really tight, you know? And you go, come on, aren't you coming? He goes, no way. My sand? I'll never give it up. And you see him, he's like playing with it while you're counting your diamonds over in the other room. You think, there's something wrong with this person. This person needs some kind of medical attention. Only a fool would not trade dirt for diamonds, right? But that's exactly what you're doing if you will not give up your sin and your pleasures and the things of this world to have Jesus Christ and the everlasting life that he offers his disciples. God help us to make that decision. And God help us who have made that decision to keep fixing our minds on that treasure, Christ and life with Christ in the kingdom to come. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us do that, please? We desperately need your grace. We don't see things as they truly are. We need you to open our eyes and help us to be like Moses, who chose to suffer reproach for Christ and to suffer with the people of Christ rather than to have the riches and treasures of Egypt. Help us to see, Lord, that the things of this world are fleeting, they're passing, they're empty, they're shadows. They cannot satisfy us. They cannot give us life. They cannot give us the most important things we need. And open our eyes to see the beauty, the glory, the value and worth of Jesus Christ. Having him, like Paul, just knowing Christ Jesus. Help us to count all things as loss. Help us to count all things as rubbish, as dung, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord and having that righteousness which comes through faith in him. Lord, help us to do that, not only for our sake, but so that Jesus Christ would be seen as glorious and valuable to people in this world. Help us to make radical, sacrificial decisions. Press in on us. Point out to us by your Spirit where there are areas of our lives that we need to repent. We need to yield greater obedience to you. We need to yield greater submission to your leading and to your will for us. Lord, would you do that so that you would be honored in our lives and you would be seen for who you truly are and you would get what you're worthy of. Do that in this congregation. Lord, be honored, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, Marco, for a convicting as well as encouraging message in pointing us to Christ as our supreme treasure. We're now going to sing a very appropriate hymn of response. Uh, in Jesus I my cross have taken. May, may God answer this and truly help us to take our cross and follow him. Please stand if you're able to and let's sing.
Show your face and 